This NBA season, make every three-pointer, alley-oop, and buzzer beater even more exciting with FanDuel. You can bet on everything from first baskets and number of dunks to which player will drain the most threes. Or stack your bets with the same-game parlay for a shot to win even bigger. It's quick, easy, and you'll get your winnings fast. So download the app today and see why we're North America's number one sportsbook. Make every moment more with FanDuel. 19 plus and physically located in Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-866-531-2600 or visit connectsontario.ca. Want to hear something amazing? Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year, automatically, dollar for dollar, with no limit on how much you can earn. Extra cash? Come on, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you realize all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2020 Nielsen Report limitations apply. Thanks for calling Toyota. This is Jan. Hi, Jan. I heard Toyota-thon is on. It sure is. Perfect. I'm getting a head start on my list for Santa. Well, we've got great year-end deals on Camry, Highlander, RAV4, and more. But what kind of toys do you have? It's actually Toyota-thon, not Toyota-thon. We have great deals on vehicles, not toys. I'm sorry, sweetie. Okay, what can I get for five bucks? Current offers end November 30th. Toyota-thon ends January 4th. Participating dealers only. Toyota. Let's go places. Hello and welcome to the Raptors Weekly Podcast. I'm Rio Sampson Folk, and today I have a very special guest, somebody who I think is one of the very best minds as far as talking basketball, if not in the NBA sphere, the Raptors sphere for sure. Yasmin Duwala, who is a co-host of the Dishes and Dimes podcast, the celebrated Dishes and Dimes podcast, I should say, and the fantastic writer and I guess head creative, being that I think she's the only creative, over at the Neon Playbook, which is, if you want to go to it, the neonplaybook.com. Fantastic stuff is written there by Yasmin herself. How are you doing today, Yasmin? I'm well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's, uh, I had you on, I think, a little bit before things went kind of crazy. And since then, yeah. you started writing, which has been, you know, obviously. I, I enjoy your writing so much, so I'm very glad that you started and you've Thank done you. that since then. Yeah, yeah, of course. And so I thought, what better time than when the season is finally getting back on to kind of have you on and then talk some basketball again? Sure. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so what I want to talk about first off is there's been a litany of articles or comments that have been made about the Raptors being, let's say, starless, without a star, and there's been some, well, I'll put it like this. The, <laughs> the Raptors aren't getting maybe the respect they deserve from a lot of national media outlets. Even Nick Nurse getting snubbed by his fellow coaches for coach of the year. Is there a lot of answers to why this is happening? Or is there a simple through line for why we see the Raptors seemingly having to apply kind of this effervescence to their play instead of regarding it as, X and O are really good at X and O. That's why it works this way. But we have to kind of find all these intangibles and say, no, this is actually what's happening. What's your perception of this? 
Um, I think it all just boils down to the fact that many Americans don't watch Raptors basketball. So I know there's like the television barrier where not all of the games are aired south of the border. So I, I think it all just boils down to them not having a familiarity with the roster that we all share. Like to us, it's to us as Raptors fans, um, mainly based in uh, Canada, um, it's so plain to see to us because we see these games regularly. We're so familiar with the characters and everything um, and their style of play. So I feel like we're in a time now with, with the bubble where every game is worth watching and we've gone without basketball for so long. So now people are kind of familiarizing themselves with the Raptors. So I don't think there's like an um, inherent bias or like anti-Canadian notion i know it makes for like great jokes <laughs> when um uh when it seems as though the media is piling against the team like when they're posting highlights of the opposition and never of actually like the raptors winning <laughs> so um yeah i don't think there's like this um conspiracy but it just all boils down to them not being familiar with the roster i think yeah that's probably a good way to put it especially since there are some writers who seem to get it and they watch a lot of basketball or they pay attention to, let's say, I know Dan Devine says he reads Blake quite a lot. Kevin Arnovitz, when I had him on the pod last year, said he reads Raptors Republic after big games, especially just to get an idea of what the people think, even the people who are commenting just mm-hmm. to get the temperature of the team. It, it takes quite a bit of work, I think, to stick around and have a good beat on a team. For example, like, you with the 76ers, that's not something you just fell into. But before we get to that, you referred to the players as characters. And that just kind of reminded me of one of the pieces you wrote at the neonplaybook.com. And that was kind of making it this mirror image of reality television or a TV show, the NBA yeah. doing that. Was that natural for you to kind of frame it that way when you first started? I know you talked about it in the piece. But or is that something that you kind of thought I can retrofit this idea and make it cute and make it something that's really good to read? Or, <laughs> or did you actually view it that way? Yeah, no, that's actually like honestly how I viewed it. Like as somebody with like no real like sports background, that's kind of how I fell into NBA basketball. Like I think it, it initially stemmed from um, yeah, I grew up watching the team and they'd always be on at the background, but like. I think maybe through social media, I thought maybe I should like really look into this. And that's how I approached watching it in the beginning. And I think like when you view it that way, you realize that um, the characteristics of a player are just really tied to how they play. And it makes it more, um, it makes watching them more understandable. Uh, for example, like I feel like uh, Kyle Lowry is a good example because um, his character impacts his play so much and it doesn't really show up on a stat sheet. It doesn't show up um like you know on on his regular line so i feel like to really understand the game if you approach them as personalities you know with a certain you know type of behavior and it's kind of it goes down to like the whole eye test thing like the eye test is really really important i feel like and it it, um it really ties into uh how everyone is kind of writing about oh the raptors are amazing an amazing basketball team like uh they're actually literally watching them play now (laughs) It's interesting to view it that way and probably much more fun. I had always tried to keep myself rooted in just like these are people, just try and view it that way. But to kind of because you're never going to know them intimately, at least probably not, to let yourself round out like this is a character that I enjoy immensely 
and he belongs in this world that is mostly alien to me. And this world is filled full of characters that I enjoy, and there is an overarching narrative that happens every season, as if it were a yeah. TV show. I had never thought of it before, but it, it the way you put it out there seemed really brilliant, and I really like that you wrote that article. Uh, thank you, and I, I remember a lot of people messaging me think, saying, like, I thought this was just me. I, I thought I was a weirdo for watching the <laughs> NBA. I'm like, no, that's perfectly normal. It's how I watch it, too. <laughs> Does that make you more susceptible to enjoying a particularly, let's say, not erratic, but somebody who's a very flamboyant type of personality? Like Joel Embiid is the entertainer, right? And I know you love JoJo. So I'm wondering, is that because of that? Or is that mostly an on-court thing? No, I think so. I think so. Because like, I like the unpredictability <laughs> of a person like Joel Embiid. He's just like a firecracker. And there are a lot of players like that. And I, I guess I just appreciate them more subconsciously. Um, but no, that's definitely a factor. <laughs> and I think a lot of people are coming around maybe to those ideals. When you look at Jimmy Butler, who is this kind of curmudgeonly figure or seen as such for such a long time. To where yeah. now you see he's actually maybe considered to be one of the funnier players in the NBA. And same with Kyle Lowry. Both players yeah. who early on in their career were considered these kind of real hard asses who got on everybody's case. But now you look at them and they're revered as like the funniest and the best teammates. And just the way it came around is super interesting to me. Yeah. And, and the same goes for um, how Kyrie was kind of turned into a villain. I guess it was to fit like a, a role that we were missing in the NBA for a bit. Um, so like he kind of took that took on the uh, role of villain for the league uh, last season. Yeah, I would be guilty of not not villainizing him, but kind of I I rolled my eyes at Kyrie oh, for absolutely. a long time. <laughs> Yeah, but definitely I made sure I did none of that in the recent seven months just because I think he's been pretty much hitting all the right notes. And I think it yeah, was, I agree. Yeah, but initially, like the flat earth stuff, I, I thought like, OK, that's funny. And, you know, especially with you know how some people when they talk, it feels like they're trying to shove as many esoteric words in there as possible and they're pretty much saying something that's quite simplistic i kind of yeah. got that feeling from him when he would speak for a, for a time but the amount of you know energy he's put behind his words recently has been i don't know if there's a comparable player right now but he's he's really backed up everything he said i he's yeah. impressed the hell out of me but, but yes he he definitely was villainized would watch on Kyrie the disruptor like <laughs> It's funny to think of it. <laughs> it's, like no, it's been kind of embarrassing seeing like the follow through on like everything Kyrie has done since that piece was published. Yeah, that's the thing, man. If you if you have money, you can like kind of be it's like a superpower in a way because you can say stuff and then you can just make stuff happen if you if you want to, if you want to get behind it. And Kyrie, I think for a lot of people completely swung the narrative around him just by standing behind his words and putting, you know, the exorbitant amounts of money that he has behind his intentions, which is, mm -hmm. you know, well done for him. But it's to have money and to have a good heart to put it towards stuff, I think, goes a long way, although probably better if <laughs> more people have less money, to be quite honest. Yeah, that too. But yeah. We're here to talk basketball, not um, Marxism, socialism, <laughs> capitalism, etc. I know you're a big fan of basketball, and I do 
in a lot of ways, revere how you see the game, not just because you've introduced new wrinkles of television to it for me, but because I think you pick up a lot of things that are made on the court. And so I want to talk to you about the two games against the Lakers and the Heat. I think the Raptors impressed a lot of people by their ability to make adjustments. Do you have any favorite adjustments that have been made so far that you really enjoyed? Um, I think using OG and Pascal to play off each other in defense was really like new to me because I, I don't I don't think I've noticed them being utilized on the best players on the court as actively in the last um, couple games. Like I from this season, I feel like I've seen Pascal on the best player sometimes on um, kind of a decoy on the court as well. And with OG, like he's not always guaranteed to guard the best player on the opposition as well. So um, I think seeing them guarding like the LeBron and AD pick and roll, which is like known as the most um, efficient in the league, like or one of the most efficient in the league and seeing them so successfully just snuff it out repeatedly as LeBron and AD were trying to uh, spam that play, I think, in the third quarter of the last game. Um, and then seeing OG um, used on BAM in order to just neutralize that handoff that BAM has with Duncan Robinson, which is like a huge part of the Heat offense. They rely on Duncan Robinson's gravity um, and BAM's ability as a role guy um, to execute so much of their plays. So to see the Raptors just go and say, oh, this is like your most efficient and fruitful play. Let's remove that from your playbook. And seeing these teams uh, struggle to adjust is really cool like it just it shows that if they have a defensive um game plan they can execute it with ease because they have the bodies to do so so i i love seeing that because it's also reflective of i think how intensely the nurse will be scheming for the playoffs so just finding a team and then neutralizing their pet play uh, so i'm just i'm excited to see how it rolls out into the postseason as well yeah i thought it was a stroke of genius from whoever's idea it was, whether it was the ensemble of the coaching staff, whether OG was like, hey, I think I can guard Bam, since Fred Van Vliet spoke to that and said, we consider him a five a lot of the time around practice and stuff like that. Or if Nick Nurse, it was him saying, hey, OG, this is the way we're going to attack it. But OG's ability to play up one or two positions, because nominally he's the three, but as far as him and Pascal... They're pretty much, you can switch them, Pascal even having maybe the the skill set of a three more so than OG Ananobi, and looking at OG and saying, hey, you can go up a position the same way that Bam went down a position to guard Pascal in that game earlier this year, and then completely neutering all of the dribble handoff actions that the Heat had planned. And not only that, but OG was able to switch out of it and onto Duncan Robinson if they got the handoff, which, I mean, and that was just him that he took away probably... 25-30% of the offense. I couldn't believe it. I know. I was just going to mention that a lot of Heat fans were kind of um, shocked at Duncan's reaction to being targeted. Seeing how a huge part of their offense is not familiar with defenses keying in on him is interesting for the playoffs as well. Yeah. Did you happen to see his interview that he was talking? I didn't see the full interview, but he was talking with J.J. Redick. Did you happen to oh, see yeah, that I clip? Oh, yeah, I saw that clip. Yeah. Fred Van Vliet? Undrafted players kind of you know, target him the same way um, Kyle kind of turns up when he's playing like another Villanova kid. I, I feel that way, like with uh, undrafted players in Fred Van Vliet. Do you ever play basketball or are you mostly, you like to watch it? No, I'm a watcher. I just watch it. 
Okay, I can so relate to Duncan Robinson that there's a complete dog on the other end of the court. And I don't talk much when I play basketball, but if I've ever said something and then you realize that the other guy has just this complete other level he'll go to, like he's a maniacal competitive mastermind. (laughs) And Fred Van Vliet defensively, Getting his ire, getting him really angry, and you could see Duncan Robinson almost with PTSD the way he was telling that story, like, oh my god, what have I done? Like, those heavy hands coming down on every shot. You have to apologize to turn it down. Yeah, exactly. But that is is something that I think happens in a lot of basketball games, and good for Duncan Robinson to recognize that you can apologize, because I think a lot of guys, they just go and go and go until it reaches this fever pitch that somebody... Who knows what happens? But well, yeah. I guess Serge Ibaka knows better than most people. But maybe he'd be <laughs> the guy to ask. But there, there was a notion as far as the Heat that there's adjustments for the Heat to make. And while there might, might be some, I think they already snipped Myers out of their starting lineup. They did try a lot of, and you know, Jay Crowder did go four of ten from downtown. They did utilize what he was best at. Do you think there's a lot left for the Heat to do if we see that Raptors-Heat matchup in the playoffs? Um, I think the Heat have already done it, like, heading into the bubble because they took Myers Leonard out of their starting five and moved Bam to the um, five position. Um, and they, they're they not giving um, – well, they're giving very few minutes to – or seconds even to uh, Derek Jones Jr. So they're already, like, kind of tweaking the weaknesses in their roster because – um, even though Myers stretches the floor, he is a, he's not really like a prolific shooter and he is a defensive liability, even though he does bring size and he makes it more cramped on the court for uh, Bam. And then um, you have taking Derek Jones Jr. out of their um, Ross, out of their rotation, who is a non-shooter, even though he's a great defender. So it, it already shows that they're thinking ahead. Um, in how they're going to go with their roster moving forward. Like, taking a whole player out of the starting lineup is no small move. You know, we'd be talking about it if Norman Powell was introduced to the starting five. So uh, I think they're already taking those steps forward. But with the with the uh, Heat, it's kind of like a feast or famine situation because a lot of their best defenders are non-shooters, like Andre Iguodala. Um, I think Jay Crowder is their most balanced uh, rotation player, where he is like a 3 and D guy. Um, but even then, you can't rely on uh, uh, rotation players like Jay Crowder in you know series against very evenly matched teams. So um, it, it's interesting to me, like so much of their um, offense relies on the abilities of their younger guys who are not too familiar with um, competitive series or really, really aggressive defenses like Tyler Hero and Duncan Robinson. So I'm just... I, I feel like a series with the Heat, I don't see it going too long. And if it does, it will be on the hero, hero, like hero, offensive heroics of Jimmy Butler. And he would have to bust out of his outside shooting slump. Like he's on a year-long slump where he's not even attempting shots. So, um, yeah, it's like a feast or famine situation for the Heat. I feel like gaining something for the roster, they're, if they're adding something to the rotation, they're also losing something. You said Andre Iguodala. Is that number 28? Yes, <laughs> number 28 on the court. Okay, <laughs> glad, to, glad to figure it out. But yeah, I think you bring up some good points is that they already feel like, well, I feel as if they've showed their hand and it seems you feel the same way too. And there's only so much they can tweak 
and they can get more efficient at what they're doing currently. There's some things that they'll get better at. Maybe there's some wrinkles they can add to the dribble handoff game between Bam and Duncan Robinson. That's that's something they've been working on for a while. But I think yeah. the Heat, you've kind of seen what they're going to be working with, whereas a lot of the best teams I still think have a lot left to to counter with. Yeah, and I'm also seeing... Um, like. I feel like the best way to a lot of people are going to be moving their big men to deal with Pascal. So I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, like for that, for example, the heat were playing Bam at the four um, when they were matched up last time, which would mean that they either put like a player like Jay Crowder on Gasol or they have Myers Leonard on the floor as well. So if they have Myers Leonard on the court, we're going to see a lot of Gasol and Pascal pick and roll to shed Bam off of him. Um, and even in the case of like the Celtics, I can see them maybe getting desperate and trying having ha- trying to have Tice sag off and putting a smaller player on Gasol. So I- I've been seeing them get Gasol good post positioning and having them having him work on a smaller player because he oftentimes finds himself being guarded by smaller guys. So it was good to see him exploiting those mismatches the last couple games, even if it's just for like six points. It still shows them not to go to that. Yeah, I think he had three duck-ins between Lakers. The one on the Lakers he had on Dion Waiters, I think it was. And then he mm-hmm. had one on Jay. And I can't remember who the... Maybe Kendrick Nunn for a possession. He was stuck in there. What do you think about um, Kendrick Nunn versus Goran Dragic? Because Dragic is the superior player, obviously. Like, he's a weasel, yeah. but he's very good. What do you think about <clears throat> Kendrick Nunn? I know that... Like, do you think that's something that he might do? Is put Dragic in the starting lineup? Or do you think that's yeah. very little... I, I I heard of that uh, proposition as well um, on a Heat podcast. I forgot which one it was, but they mentioned the um, how there's kind of a split between fans with starting Dragic or keeping none in the starting lineup. Um, to me, he he doesn't give much on defense. He seems to be like kind of a sleepy defender, and I saw Fred Fred VanVleet really exploiting that because every single time it seemed that. Nunn was going under the screen and giving him ample space to load up and shoot the three. So, um, like, it it depends. I'm not really sure which way they'd go because both Duncan and Nunn, uh, sorry, both Nunn and um, Dragic uh, are negative defenders. So, although they might get a little more of a competent offense with Dragic and someone who can really penetrate and take advantage of... um, slow-footed bigs then i guess they'd go with that but i'm ugh, i'm not i'm it's a tough decision it, that's why it's kind of split between the fan base mm-hmm. it's it's interesting to watch teams go under on fred van fleet which makes no sense to me because i think you generally if you have a good chase over the top and you have an a, even an okay dropping big fred has a lot of trouble making things happen from the middle of the floor it's just tough Passing angles that are there for other players aren't there for him. He has to reset a lot. So when teams drop low and he just pulls from deep, it, it's confused me for forever why he gets played that way. It's kind of like in the regular season when teams would chase DeMar when they should be going under. And it just seems like that's a super easy thing to just tell your team before that, like, hey, go under on DeMar's screens. But teams don't yeah. do it. I wonder why. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I have no idea. Um, uh, but it, it's cool seeing, uh, Fred more comfortable shooting just a couple feet above the line now. Cause I feel like that's opened it up for him a lot too on the, uh, pick and roll with, um, Gasol or, you know, whoever, um, 
but yeah, seeing him shoot, I think he's just an all-around better shooter this year. Like, I just feel like I'm seeing more versatility when it comes to that. Like, he's even adding a bit of a pull-up game. Yeah, that was something we saw in the in in the summer clips after Kawhi left, and everybody was saying, "Okay, everybody's gonna have to step up." You saw Pascal and Fred. A lot of the pull-ups he was taking in those Rico Hines runs and the UCLA runs and all that were you know, six, seven feet behind the line, which being a shorter player and being a guy who is a set shooter for the most part, kind of getting back so you have more more time, more space to release is super important. So if he mm-hmm. can just take, if he gets those extra three, four feet on every pull-up and can still shoot, you know, 36 plus percent. I know he's not shooting that. I think he's at 33.8 or 34% as a pull-up shooter on the year. But if he can get to like 36%, on pull-up threes, that would be really, really impressive for him. And obviously, his pick-and-roll game is a work in progress, but that would help a lot, as it does with a bunch of different players, Victor Oladipo, Kyle Lowry, both of them, the pull-up three, kind of making their pick-and-roll game go initially when they're getting into it. But Gasol really seems to open up Fred's game. Is there anything specific that you notice, in, like if they're symbiotic in a way? Because Fred has a tough time making things work with Serge, Serge has a tough time making things work with Fred, but Fred and Gasol, they seem to gel together quite nicely, especially with split action stuff when Fred kind of spaces to the corner and Norm Powell takes the cut to the rim. One of them gets it. A lot of times if Fred catches that, he makes a great shot. Do you notice anything with that? Yeah, I think that Gasol kind of takes some um, pressure off of Fred and allows him to be off ball a little more because Fred is really good at relocating. Um and it seems, it seems that he and Pascal have like a connection where Pascal will tumble into the paint and just throw it. And then bam, you see Fred right in that space and you weren't even expecting that. But um, yeah, I think that it gives him the opportunity to play off ball a little more. Um, I feel that Fred has really, really improved um, as a distributor and as someone who can manipulate defenses. He's still a work in progress. And I feel like um, Gasol's presence and that extra pass that he's willing to do really um, opens things up for Fred and I guess um, allows him to focus on what he does best. But yeah, I think he's really improved as a distributor. I thought the performance in the um, the Laker game where he, I think he had like 11 assists was so impressive. Like even though he didn't have the best offensive game, like just seeing him constantly finding teammates, it, it was kind of like, it was not Fred-like. <laughs> That's what I will say. Yeah, I find that a lot of his big assist games are very, very much influenced by transition. He gets a lot of transition assists because he is a tireless worker, both defensively and offensively. And that means that he's always back defensively. That means he chases players around screens relentlessly. But also on offense, he pushes every time he gets the ball. So sometimes Fred turns situations that have no business being considered transition opportunities into transition opportunities or semi-transition. So we're looking at him finding guys like Goji Ananobi in the corner or leaking out or getting a drag screen and kind of getting the defense out of sorts before they're set up. And that's something that those are just little things that he does that I think he picked up from Kyle Lowry. That's one of the ways to get easy offense. That's one of the ways to help your team out, teammates out and get them in rhythm. And like you said, he had a tough start to the Lakers game. And a lot of people really liked his response. His second half, I thought, was really 
great because it was more off ball and he was making great passes in transition. But those two things are so important for him to do. And then you see against Miami, it's this more dominating on ball lead guard type of performance where he gets 36 points. It's so tough to say what separates a good Fred game from a bad Fred game because a lot of it seems like it's shot making to me. Yeah, I also think that sometimes um, I'll see him like drive into the paint and know that it's not going to go into the hoop that he is about to get blocked. And he does that repeatedly, I guess, to maybe draw a foul or prove that he can do it. So sometimes like, I think he gets in his own head, um, but it never affects his um, shot making. Like that's more of a mixed bag, but like generally... I think Fred's toughest games are when he seems out of character, when he doesn't seem like his red, like regular steady self. The defense is always there, which is good. It's just offensively, you know, you have your ups and downs. It's not everybody is one of the, you know, maybe one day he will be like a top seven point guard, but right now he's maybe hovering around top 10. But that's usually when you're sitting around like top seven, top five. Those are the point guards who bring it every and night. I, one of which... I'll also just say that um, I think that his defense also affects his play because I think that if he's struggling to contain another guard, it kind of affects his play. I feel like that's correlated. Like I feel like his toughest um, offensive matchups kind of influence his own performance. Like, for example, if he's dealing with a Westbrook or something, you could see him get a bit overwhelmed. Um, but when he knows that he has this defensive matchup, I think it just influences his confidence for the night. I don't, I, I feel like that's kind of correlated. Yeah, it definitely could be. There's a lot of, a lot of people see success in one thing and it allows them to translate it to another. So there's, there's no reason why it wouldn't be that the way he looks at his <clears throat> matchups is if I'm stopping you, there's no reason why I can't score on the other end. And that just helps him maybe make some better reads because basketball is a mental game. A lot of the time there's when you go play pickup at a gym, there's always a dude who's like 44 hasn't has a decent jump shot, but just makes really clever reads because he's comfortable with his body. He's comfortable with how he protects the ball. And then there's a lot of explosive Mm -hmm. young guys who are maybe so focused on the dribble package they're getting off or their their burst downhill that they're not seeing everything happening around them. But maybe when Fred is comfortable, things open back up, which I want to talk about Kyle Lowry for a second just to uh, to get away from Fred, who deserves all the credit in the world, by the way. But Lowry, I think, has been superb to start. What have you liked about his game so far? And what is it that is popping for everybody else who's just noticing like, oh, oh, my God, this Kyle Lowry guy, pretty good. Um, I think he has like a lot of trust uh, with his teammates. Like I'm, I'm seeing him really comfortable making that extra pass, like, um, like insisting upon it. And then he's just been really good at picking his spots offensively. Like if he feels like he can impose his will on the game, he absolutely will. If he feels as though a certain player has a better advantage to at the at that given night. Um, I see him exploit that too. So I'm just seeing like a really comfortable Larry. I'll say like his Miami game, um, they defended him really well. Like I just, I enjoyed how Miami dealt with Kyle. I feel like they're probably really familiar with him, which gave them more of an ease. But I, but because of that, they let Fred Van Leek uh, get loose. So I, it's cool that we can count on a dominant performance from either point guards. Very rarely you'll have a night where they both deeply struggle. Um, so... 
like just from his game, I'm in, I'm seeing that comfort. He's really well conditioned right now. He's really healthy. He's just kind of tossing himself around with like absolutely you know re reckless abandonment right now, uh, which is always great to see from Kyle Lowry. <laughs> um, and I think that that'll translate really really well to the playoffs. I'm not I'm not even like. When it comes with Lowry, it's always like, oh, does his shot look good? Is his shot healthy? I'm not even asking those questions because he's just been playing so well. Yeah, he's been fantastic going downhill. I think that's been the biggest thing is that he's explosive. The reads he's making on the closing out defender, super good. He's always attacking the correct foot. It's that it's always the little stuff with Lowry, and it's that little bit of using enough of the gather step so that you're still explosive. How much of the ball can you throw out in front of you without it being a travel? How close can you get to picking up your back foot before you put the ball down? Like always maintaining that triple threat, but still being really explosive getting out of it. That makes him such a monster when he attacks a closeout. Like there are players who are way more athletic than Kyle Lowry, who when they attack a closeout, they get a little bit of an edge. But Lowry, when he attacks a closeout, he blows way by them because it's that measurement of how much of their momentum is coming towards me. When should I get started? Which side of him should I attack? Where's his toe pointed? Like, wh where are his hips angled towards? And just attack the opposite side. And it's his ability, like you said, to throw himself against people, to cannonball into defenders in the middle of the paint, I think, to not only finish in the paint, but to draw free throws, something that it's been a bit of a renaissance year for him in that way, I think has been one of the biggest developments for the Raptors offense this year, but for him as well. Yeah, I agree 100%. On to something that I think was one of my favorite pieces I've read this year. Some of the... You're a hell of a writer, I have to say. You are very, <laughs> very impressive. Reading it is just... Some of it just makes you smile because it's... The way you package some terms and words together is it's really damning. It's it's very well done stuff. But in your piece about the championship, eluding an asterisk, trying to dodge it and get away from it at all costs, you make the case that it enters the zeitgeist regardless. Besides the Raptors championship, is there a chip that is ever present in your mind? Hmm. Let me think. I'm going to say... Um the 2015 Warriors title like with Steph Curry having his like MVP season like to me that that one was like kind of the people like kind of discredit it and I remember that he was responding to it the season after saying that you know sorry <laughs> basically apologizing for them seizing that title um and people like to put an asterisk on it because of that but I feel like it ushered in kind of a new style of play. It was kind of like when we think about the new age of basketball, we think to that Warriors title. Um, and I think that it was deeply important in that sense. So I always like that's that's the title prior to the Raptors one that I would always think about, um, despite the fact that people like to say it's tainted or the year after was more meaningful, yada, yada, yada. Like it's it to me, that's the one that sticks in my mind. No, I think that's a great answer. I go the year after and I think that's where we're it's just how we're viewing the titles because that 2015 title I think is the most important for how basketball is played and the next year the culture of basketball changed a lot and it affected the league greatly so when we're thinking about 2015-16 the fallout of the Cavs beating that Warriors team Kevin Durant mm -hmm. moving to Golden State that was 
hugely transformative. But as you said, 2015, Steph Curry's first MVP year, they were not favored to win the championship. They were not supposed to. There was still this idea that, well, maybe it's that antiquated Charles Barkley idea that you can't win the championship shooting jump shots. And they had gotten, <laughs> they had that crazy, they had that crazy series with Chris Paul the year before and the, the Clippers, the Clippers beat them. And then the next year, they just came through and they, they steamrolled everybody and they had this great playoffs and everybody was like, oh, okay, this team is the real deal. How did they do that when they're just taking three-pointers? And then there are guys who, let's say like a Kyle Lowry, who even in 2013, 2014, he knew exactly how important the pull-up three-pointer was. He knew how it stretched out defenses. He knew what it allowed him to do going downhill. Yeah, but and- after 2015, I think you're right that it changed how players saw the jumper. Yeah, exactly. And um, it, it's interesting because just earlier today, I was looking at um, finals data from like, I think it was the 2011-2012 finals and then the 2012-2013 final. And I was looking at these numbers and I'm like, this is like almost unusable for context because the style of play has changed so much. Like the number of three-pointers... Um, that were taken in these playoff series was like teams were averaging like 11 attempts or something or 11 threes per game. And I'm like, this is not usable in today's NBA. So um, yeah, I feel like that was like the turning point that I always think about. That's like when, you know, relevant basketball, like modern basketball that we know uh, today and how people are kind of gearing towards playing. Like that's why I can't even say for sure that if the Warriors do come back, at full health and they're playing kind of like they're that iteration of the team where it's Draymond um, flanked by Steph and Clay um, and any competent big man in the five. So um, like, I, I can't say for sure whether that worry, this Warriors team for next year will be successful or not, because I feel like everyone is kind of caught up to that style of play. Like, how is it going to look without KD? Yeah, that was KD was like the insurance policy. The insurance policy that the Rockets hated and that the Rockets needed. Because the Rockets, for example, that 27 missed threes in a row, they saw the formula that Golden yeah. State had. And they're like, okay, we're going to jack them up too. Except they didn't have Kevin Durant to shoot 54% on two-point pull-ups, mid-range pull-ups or something like that, just in case they needed to stop the bleeding at any point in time. And Harden fully emblazoned and fully enabled in that system was not going to go to the mid-range. He kept pulling up. Eric Gordon kept pulling up. Chris Paul kept pulling up. Well, I guess he wasn't in that game as well. And I think they would have won the chip if Chris Paul had been healthy, just for the record. But <laughs> as you say, it, the context of it makes almost no sense because it was basically like you're only taking threes if you're wide open, if you're a really great shooter and they go under, or if there's side top side action and one of Danny Green or Ray Allen is in the corner. Now people hunt threes like you you just couldn't get enough of them. Yeah, everyone on the roster has to be a decent three-point shooter or they'll be like completely exploited by the opposing defense. And, you know, that's why there is a Ringer article today and it it was kind of annoying because fans were annoyed at the fact that the, the article was insisting that the Raptors have no star. The star is their system. But there was a gem in the article where they spoke about, um, in the article, um, they mentioned that um, everyone on the rotation or their top seven guys are great three-point shooters that you don't want to leave open, like right down to the bigs with Ivaka and 
Gasol. Like somebody has to close out on them. Um, so I, that's a huge advantage that they have um, right now. But it, yeah, it would have just been like hard to comprehend in an era back then. <laughs> that's how you have to play now. Like everyone has to be a threat on the court. Yeah, that's one of the I wrote about it in a piece that maybe is a week, a week and a half old. It's called What is the Raptors offense? And so I just divided the Raptors offense into creators and finishers because that's how I see them. And finishers is Terrence Davis, OG, Norman Powell and Serge Ibaka, none of which have a true shooting percentage under 59 percent. None of them. And it gets as high as Powell at almost 63 percent. And none of the creators on the Raptors have a a true shooting percentage that gets close to 59%. That's, and that's just because the, the brunt of creation has now gotten so high in the NBA that the finishers are just these highly efficient positions, but that never used to be the case. It used to just be like, get the star of the basket, get the star of the basket, get the star of the basket. And now we've kind of transitioned since Steph Curry became not a system player, but a system who is also a player that you're looking for this one guy just to create a multitude of opportunities all the time. And you have these read and react systems around them. And the Raptors have that type of offense and it's really hard to stop when it gets going. But yeah, those having so many dangerous shooters, like every single one of those guys shoots above 38% from three. Terrence Davis, Norm Powell, OG, Serge Ibaka. And Gasol shoots above that too. And so while Pascal and Kyle and Fred don't have the best three-point numbers because they kind of have to pull up a lot more, it's just crazy to see that top eight provide so much potency from downtown, and especially the the classical finisher, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's going to be needed Um in a postseason, like people, like players on the roster who are just so such refined scorers, um, it, it's like extremely necessary, and it's why we see um, Norman Powell thrive against a team like the Bucks because I feel like they've gotten so many reps throughout the season in just being pure scorers that when they're really needed to stop the bleeding or to generate some offense, they always come through because I feel like they've been kind of. Um, cultivated for those moments in particular yeah i man i cannot talk enough about how much norm powell impresses me to go from where against the bucks in that famous series where he became like a killer against the bucks where it was just attacking off the weak side like demar deros and kyle Lowry get into the middle of the paint the ball goes to norm and he's either beating the help side to the rim or he's taking a three and that's all they needed and he did a hell of a job to now where they call plays for him for yeah. an, for example, when they want to stop the bleeding, when they need a score, they're like, okay, we're going to have a pin down on the right side. Norm, make the read. Curl if you want, jet back and take the three-pointer if you want, but you make the read, you take the shot. And he does, and he's doing it at nearly 63% true shooting. So it's no longer just him being wide open. It's putting him in actual actions as the first option. And he's providing this insanely efficient offense. It's He's taken massive steps this year. Yeah, and it's it's why I'm not worried about him. Like he's not been himself the past um, two bubble games, um, but I'm honestly not worried. I feel like with everybody healthy, Ibaka and Norm have to find a new rhythm. I feel like maybe a new drive, since they're not being asked to be you know starters or to take on huge offensive burdens. Um, they need to kind of pick new spots. 
um, this season. So, well, this bubble season. So I, I think by the last couple of games, we'll see them kind of find their rhythm again. And even in the first round of the playoffs, it'll be an opportunity um, for the Raptors to give Norm that that kind of um, comfort that he had in his role earlier. I remember there was like a huge discrepancy between his bench scoring and his starter scoring. Um, and But he kind of fixed that up this season. So I, I don't think that he'll struggle at all. Like, I, I think he's going to find his rhythm soon. Yeah, that's an important thing to note is that when OG Ananobi came in his rookie season, Norm was initially slotted to be the guy at his position, except he lost that out because he didn't thrive with the starters like he was, like people thought he might. And that's been, you know, a long road to improvement for him. And obviously OG is, you know, the next big thing in Toronto and deservedly, deservedly so. But that wasn't something that was easy for Norman. That's something he's overcome is to thrive in any and all situations. And the point you make about him being a little bit off, totally. It's the jumper isn't there the same way it was. And that affects the driving lanes that open up to him. But I've still liked, despite him missing some bunnies and some easy shots, he's been able to get to the rim. He's been beating the help side to the glass. And he hasn't been getting blocked every third shot at the rim like he used to. So I think... It's just the finishing will, it'll be a bit more crisp and the jump shot will come around. And I think, like you say, he'll find his spot. And as far as Surge, I think he just has to play more with Kyle. And then Kyle has set him up in so many easy spots that he'll probably be like, okay, this is what basketball feels like again. But right now he's just missing some pocket passes, some bounce passes, and he's just a little bit off. But it's, there's lots of room for optimism for sure. Oh, yeah, I agree. One last thing to talk about. And it's a very wide-ranging topic and one that you might enjoy because the floor is basically yours. Your favorite things happening in the NBA that aren't related to the Raptors. Let me think. Um, I do like that race for the eighth seed in the West right now. I think that's really interesting. Um, Seeing the uh, Grizzlies trying to retain their spot but still kind of struggling. Um, because they've already lost, I think, their first three bubble games. Um, and it was a versus competition that they were supposed to beat. So Portland, Grizzly, I'm sorry, uh, the Pelicans. Um, I, I think it was the Spurs as well that they lost again. I could be wrong. That they lost against, I could be wrong. Um, but, yeah, so that race has been really cool. Seeing the Spurs kind of put DeMar at the four um, and seeing that actually work to success, like, I watched them versus um, Sixers last night, um, and they almost, almost stole the game. Like, they almost got it there. Um, but yeah, that, that's been really interesting to, for me, the uh, race for that eighth spot, um, that little tournament right now uh, in the West. Yeah, there's so much to like as far as when you're looking at the Grizzlies, John Morant is super fun, but also Jaron Jackson Jr., when you watch him, he's so spindly and lanky, but he's got a tighter dribble than you think, and he finishes everything at the rim. Like, his arms always get to the bucket. Like, he can, he's taking these huge steps through the lane. He has to step around six guys, it seems like, but he's still getting his arms out there for a dunk. His range offensively is insane. Like, he has those unhinged pull-up threes as if he were the living embodiment of <laughs> Steph Curry. And and he's got this push shot, too. Like, it's not a pretty jumper, but it works for him. And he's just, he lets it go with no regard for human life. And as you said, DeMar getting to do his thing, I think is one. I love DeMar. He's my favorite player ever. It broke my heart when they traded him. 
but I've always been a, a self-aware Damar fan. So I was like, <laughs> well, you know, it's it's Kawhi. I totally get why that happened. <laughs> and as far as like the Pelicans, I mean, I love watching Drew. I love watching Zion, despite Zion not maybe not capturing the exact form that he had before the bubble happened, but all all well, and also Nurkic. I mean, Nurkic was a so maybe close to top twenty player last year before he went down, and looks like a similar player right now. There's just so many talented players trying to get into the back end of the Western Conference. It's it's incredible basketball to watch, and kind of like March Madness in a way, the way that they've been able to stagger the games out. Yeah, I've loved it, and also um, I another storyline to kind of follow is in the East. Um, what team ends up with the sixth seed? Because right now, I think there's a back and forth between um, Philly and Indiana. Um, Philly has a much, I think they have the easiest schedule remaining in the league. Uh, maybe only a little harder than the Pelicans. Um, and if they end up in the sixth seed, we'll get a first round against the Celtics, which would be extremely interesting. So that's something else to look out for. What are your thoughts on the Tatum stuff? I, I am a very big Tatum fan. I'm a very big Siakam fan. We exist, but what do you think about the Tatum stuff so far, the Celtics stuff? With how he's playing in the bubble or with Tatum in general? I think those two things can be tied together. I don't think they're mutually exclusive. What do you think? Okay. Um, I, I really like Tatum. I feel like he has... His skill set is insane. I feel like he... Offensively, he has absolutely every tool in his arsenal. His jumper, his mid-range, his... It might not be the highest percentage shot, but his footwork and his uh, form is excellent. And I feel like it's only a matter of time before the percentages kind of catch up with that with reps. Um, his pull-up three is insane. He's, a, I think, almost 40% three-point shooter. This year, I think he might be at like 39% or something. Um, but I think he's a great player. Um, I do think there's a weakness to his game. Um, and, it's, and it's why I give Pascal the slight edge. I feel like Tatum um, is not the best distributor. He's I feel like he has, doesn't utilize his gravity as well as Pascal, and that's a skill set we've seen improve with Pascal. He didn't have it in the beginning of the season, but it's something that I've seen um, even in the recent games, like his ability to find shooters, his ability to make that um, hockey pass, to use his um, movement off ball because he knows how much attention he attracts. Um, but yeah, I think that's, that's kind of my opinion on the thing. I feel like they're, um, the same tier of player and a series with, um, between these two teams, um, would be an extremely, extremely competitive one. But yeah, that's where I stand on it. <laughs> yeah. I, in my top 100, I put them right next to each other, but I gave Tatum the edge. I think Tatum was 16. Pascal was 17. It's a hard And choice. I was like, Oh yeah. Well, because like you said, Tatum has every offensive tool you could you could want, and like you said, he he shoots near forty percent from three, but he's a forty percent pull up three point shooter on almost yeah. five attempts a game. Five, like he's he flings it from downtown, and so maybe I was a bit taken in by his man. He was playing great before the bubble started. He was really on fire, and it was just kind of him and Marcus Smart for some weird reason both are insane pull-up three-point shooters. Like, Marcus Smart is, like, 39%, too, for some insane reason. But maybe they're doing something out in Boston that we don't know about. But, yeah, I gave Tatum <laughs> the edge. Right now, as you say, Tatum not as 
not as capable of using his gravity to create for others as Pascal. And I think Pascal, if you factored in hockey assists, actually a much better creator than what we give him credit for, even though I think it hasn't developed as fast as a lot of his other skills. When Pascal was part of the bench mob, I think one of the things that really popped, he could finish in transition, of course, he was a super rangy defender, but I thought his playmaking was actually his most incredible feature when he was on the bench mob. I thought that he was really good making plays in transition and on the backside of the defense. Yeah, it was, that, and that inside passing, I feel like he still hasn't found a connection with someone on the roster, but it's something I've been looking out for um, with these bubble games, um, and I've been really impressed thus far. Like, his ability to find Fred Van Vliet is, I feel like I could write something about it because they have, they seem to have a connection where they always know or he, Fred, uh, Pascal always knows where Fred is going to be. Um, seeing him drive and then pass back to either Gasol or um, uh, Norm has been really cool to see. Like just seeing him um, understand the gravity that he has and utilize it to better his, his teammates. Because if you're if if your best player is not doing that, I feel like there are um, certain defenses that can fluster you. Yeah, it's one of the most important things is to find, you know, some synergy with somebody you play a lot of minutes with. And if you look at Siakam passing to Fred, it's almost 44% from downtown. And just that's also a credit to Fred and Kyle and how good they are at relocating and forming up off of drives. I mean, they do make it a lot easier for Pascal, but them working together like that it makes the future a lot brighter, I think. And as far and as... Effort. The effort it must take to follow Pascal down the court and make sure you're available in the corners is, is, is probably insane. And we're asking that of like our 34-year-old point guard. <laughs> yeah, to trying to track and mimic the quirks and rhythms of Pascal Siakam, who is one of the most changeable drivers in the world. There's yeah. just so many different little things that he does that it's... I can't imagine trying to create the angle for the pass all the time, which... You know, that's that's a credit to Pascal, but also something he needs to work on more as a role man, I think. And maybe maybe that's something we'll see progress or maybe something we'll see has progressed since the uh, since the bubble started. But Yasmin, I feel like that's a, a good place to to leap off. We've got we've got almost an hour here. <laughs> I'd like to thank you very much <laughs> for joining for me. me. But yeah, but the floor is yours. Plug whatever you want. What should the people be listening to or reading? Um, check out um, Dishes and Dimes podcast, um, where we, you know, put out shows on a weekly basis every Monday morning. And also we um, started a Patreon page. So if you listen and wish to support, uh, check out the Patreon page and also my own blog, theneonplaybook.com. And uh, look out for pieces that I'm writing for Yahoo Sports Canada on like a biweekly basis until the end of the postseason. So hopefully it's a long run so I can keep writing. <laughs> Yeah, and listener, this is me addressing you. Hi, it's Sam. I cannot co-sign the Neon Playbook enough. The stuff she puts on there is incredibly well-researched outside of the field of basketball a lot of times, and she'll tie it in in, a, in an extremely satisfying way. An example of that is her piece on Elena Della Don and the history of hysteria. Wonderful stuff. As we talked about in the podcast, how to watch NBA basketball if you've never watched basketball before. So many different competing conceptions of what things are supposed to be and well-weighted considerations of each. 
and just uh, a masterful job of tying most of these things together. So I can't I can't recommend it enough. The neonplaybook.com if you want to read her stuff and as she said, everything she mentioned before. But Yasmin, thank you very much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Have a good one. Will do. And listener, whether you're getting into this in the morning or night, thanks for joining and have a blessed day. Bye. Why do millions of Americans choose to sleep on Bolin Branch sheets? Is it the 100% organic cotton? Is it that they get softer and softer over time? Customers can't stop raving about these sheets, and there's no better time to try them for yourself or give them to someone you love. Right now, Bolin Branch is offering their best deals of the year, and you can get their incredibly soft sheets at incredibly low prices. Just go to BolinBranch.com to shop their best deals today. That's B-O-L-L and Branch.com today. See site for details. Why do millions of Americans choose to sleep on Bolin Branch sheets? Is it the 100% organic cotton? Is it that they get softer and softer over time? Customers can't stop raving about these sheets, and there's no better time to try them for yourself or give them to someone you love. Right now, Bolin Branch is offering their best deals of the year, and you can get their incredibly soft sheets at incredibly low prices. Just go to BolinBranch.com to shop their best deals today. That's B-O-L-L and Branch.com today. See site for details.